Here today, gone. Today? The pace of change can be confusing. Then again, it can be inspiring. Every year, Harvard Business School Executive Education helps executives like you build the self-confidence and decision-making skills it takes to thrive on change. Fight change with change. Go. Start by going to hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Let's get started. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Tonight, Embracing Mania, Ken Russell in the 80s, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. The Big Papa Online Network, on Blood Talk Radio. Welcome to the second episode of the fifth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So we'd previously discussed the life and career of one of his most famed and controversial collaborators, Oliver Reed, and now we go whole hog and dive in for the full Monty. Just pardon us if we don't wrestle in the buff. A wild visionary filmmaker, England's Ken Russell has traversed the heights of critical approval and fame, and similarly wallowed in the swamps and sewers of their approbation throughout his long and winding career. While many would laud his efforts with Reed and his takes on who penned rock operas, who but us would equally, if not more so, both defend and celebrate such efforts as Altered States, Gothic, Horror, Lair of the White Worm, and Crimes of Passion, most of which yours truly greatly prefers to their more popularly beloved forebears. So join us tonight as we delve into the classicism, phallic obsessions, homoeroticism, and all-out madness of one of Art House's and Sleaze's most controversial cinematic auteurs, the legendary Ken Russell, and we will be concentrating on Ken Russell in the 80s. So, this is our second time together with you people uh, hello this is the second time together with you people <laughs> i'm conflating things here because the, the people the people it's it's our third week but <laughs> second time with you people <laughs> it was like last time with the peter cottontail thing at the end of the <laughs> power to the people okay <laughs> it's like the feebles you know that movie the <laughs> Beat the feebles. Yeah. Exactly right. So anyway, here we are. And, you know, as we had uh, discussed previously, we have a lot of shows in the archive, almost 50 of them prior to the season, one of which was indeed about Oliver Reed. This time around, because we are trying to change our focus a little bit this season, you know, pair things back in so we don't have these two-hour-plus shows all the time, uh, we'll be focusing more on Ken in the 80s. I mean, a lot of people, as much as we enjoy some of those movies, like The Devils, for sure, I know you are a big fan of Tommy and Quadrophenia. You know, he did a lot of stuff that was very interesting throughout his career, but not that many people tend to focus on the latter part of his career during the 80s. And I find some of his most interesting and... um, 
I guess in terms of what tourism, personally obsessive work was done in the 80s. So, and if you look at my collection, like, oh, what do I have on DVD or blue? Except for the Devils, it's all from the 80s. You know, I'm just weird like that. I like cult stuff and uh, SLV and mm-hmm. what have you. So um, that's basically where we're going to be focusing more. But, you know, for those who don't know, I'm sure you have plenty of background on him, but just a quick version. Ken Russell is a British film director. He also did a bunch of music videos. Uh, He was kind of known for doing... The BBC had these things that they put on periodically where they would discuss famous composers or artists. In his case, it was usually composers. And they would do little, like, biopics of them. You know, maybe, Maybe. I don't know, half an hour, hour hour-long things about, like, oh, look, here's uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and how he came to fame and, you know, his death and whatever the hell else. And then they would kind of work in, like, when he did the famous compositions and so forth. You know, they're a little bit dry, but, you know, uh, he was kind of known for this, maybe just because he is uh, inclined towards the arts per se. Uh, I'm not sure how he got a rep there. You know, it's just like anything else in Hollywood. You know, you do one or two of these things, people like it, it's successful, it makes money. Eh, go ahead, let's go to this guy. He did these two before. Give him another one. You know, this time we'll give him List or whoever else. Uh, and of course, later on he did List of Mania, but that's not <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Uh, he basically uh, just to go by, he's kind of known for being uh, for pushing buttons, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other guy I can think of that's like this in British cinema, I'm sure there are others, but in terms of really, really trying to get everybody's goat, and if he knows he's got you, he's going to push you further, was Nigel Wingrove, the guy that was, uh, he did all the mm-hmm. art for the Cradle of Filth in the early days, and he put out a lot of really yeah, enjoyable, actually, uh, non-exploitation shorts uh, back in the, I guess, in the 80s and the 90s that were totally controversial, especially during the days of the video nasties. Uh, Russell was like that. He would just really go for the gusto here. Uh, of course, the most famous one being The Devils, which to this day, uh, I don't believe any of the incarnations of it on DVD or Blue in the UK, domestically here in the States or worldwide, are complete. I think they've lost a good hour worth of extra footage, uh, at my understanding. Um just because it was so censored in so many areas and so many countries. You know, not only the religious were upset, but just like everybody was upset. Ooh, sexuality. Ooh, the church. Ooh, you know, whatever. Uh, He just really likes to go over the top. And, you know, throughout his career, there's a big obsession, a joint obsession, if you will, with religion and sex. He's almost like Prince in that respect, Uh, although much more button-pushing, obviously. Um... Let's see. Apparently, his mother was actually, you know, in the bug house, <laughs> mentally ill. Um, so maybe that's where some of his more delirious visions come from. I can't speak to that, but you will see that in every one of his films, there's at least one really hallucinatory, uh, almost blasphemous. Uh, Again, conflating sexuality, uh, some sort of spirituality, and screwing with it at the same time. Um, even something like Gothic that you would think, eh, whatever, it's nothing. It's about Mary Shelley and uh, that night at uh, the Villa Diodato there, wherever it is. Uh, and yet he throws in these crazy hallucinatory visions of, like, you know, Satan on the cross and, you know, masturbating over what is some girl and then gives birth to a horse, you know, whatever. I mean, you get the idea. He's, he's really kind of out there with this stuff. Uh, and he, of course, did some other things that were more, quote, mainstream, not just the uh, biopics that he did of the uh, composers. But his first film was French Dressing, which was a really kind of tame 
um, not even slap and tickle, but like a British comedy with like a little bit of uh, girly kind of stuff. I guess like the really early Carry On films, but not even that saucy. Well, yeah, I, 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 when it's my turn, I want to mention a few of these things. In oh, brief. yeah, go right ahead. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail. Uh, but something you didn't mention, which I see him as, as a kinship of sorts to Nicholas Rogue. Yes. Uh, uh, the films of Nicholas Rogue, because I mean, for me, yeah, I hear what you're saying about Nigel Wingrove. Uh, but with, with Nick Rogue and Cam Russell, um, it's funny. It's like funny odd, actually. Funny odd that how these two guys managed to get careers mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, and were so idiosyncratic in their work. There was really nobody making movies like them. Right. And, and yes, he got his start, uh, uh, like you said, with the, the this British television thing doing these short films, uh, which were unusual at the time. But I guess no real notice was made of them. And then you mentioned French, French dressing, uh, which, yeah, is a takeoff on the Roger Vadim and Guy Created Women, which didn't do well anyway. You know, it's, it's in retrospect, the Roger Vadim film is uh, lauded upon by more movie and genre buffs than it was commercial. It wasn't a commercial hit, I think. Uh, sexy film, you know, Bardot, made Bardot like a household name. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then I think he ruined for years the... <laughs> Harry Palmer franchise with Michael Caine <laughs> because there were, there were two really good I like those I thought it was Mike, Michael Caine we should do Michael Caine I'm sure I could try imitations uh, uh, there was uh, the first two Harry Palmer pictures and then Ken Russell gets billion dollar brain this is where yes. I'm jumping in and <laughs> it's like what the hell because cause I really like the other two and uh, I was baffled by that film. I'd seen it like maybe a year and a half back when it came out to uh, Blu-ray, and I thankfully didn't buy it. I just like, surfed through the library system, and I'm like, wow, this is really kind of screwed up, and not in a, oh, wow, this is great, this is Ken Russell really screwing with things. It was just like, what the hell were they thinking? <laughs> kind of a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Ipcrest Files was the first one, which right. is really... I mean, can't recommend that one highly enough. It's not what you think it is, yeah. And then uh, the one after it, which, I'm sorry, folks, I forgot the name of the second <laughs> picture. Uh, it's, it's equally as good. And then Billion Dollar Brain, you got the Ed Bagley uh, character, after all people call Mold. And uh, the problem with Ken is um, if he's not worked with you before, this is me speaking from, from what I'm able to pick up on all this stuff, he has a tough time directing people, and um, he likes to to probably go out there and say, "This is what I'm thinking," and go with it. I'm sure everybody's befuddled, and the figure I'll overact because I don't know what he's what he wants from me. And so he's trying to paint a picture. And one of the things Ken does, and you'll see this uh, in, in in the films we're actually not discussing today. Uh, is he does things in the editing room or with his editor that are beyond weird, <laughs> uh, especially for the time period. I mean, his I, this is why I liken him to Nicholas Rogue in, in my mind. Uh, the things he does with cutting and, and, and time, space, it's just odd. But then there's the, um, the 
you know, he's not. So, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned about the mother. Uh, you know, something else I picked upon in research. Uh, Ken wanted to be a ballet dancer. Yes. Uh, and, and instead he went into the, the armed services and then became a merchant marine. So you got the tough and the effeminate, which is interesting because those are themes you will see. Yes. In a lot of his films. His, it's interesting um, because a lot of his films are very homoerotic, and mm-hmm. yet they're also highly sexual in a, uh, you know, man-woman sort of a way. I hate to say normative way, but you know, uh, culturally normative, I guess. Uh, true, true. But I also think that a lot of his male leads come out a bit femi or reveal femi sides. Yes. Um, it's very much of a mixed bag, and like you said, yeah, you can see that sure. kind of balance between. Again, like Prince, you know, am I male, am I female more? You know, talking about internal, like a yin-yang kind of a thing. Uh, Am I, you know, religious? Am I blasphemous? Am I, you know, grounded in earth and sexuality? Am I, you know, ethereal and going for something higher? Mm -hmm. This is all kind of tossed up in there and very much in contention. There's no, one really doesn't win out over the other throughout his career. And it's part of what makes them feel very uh, schizophrenic, if you will, as films. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the the music lovers, uh, which I think is an okay movie. I mean, if you're gonna say Lewis, what do you think of this film? Yeah. I I'd say you know what? It's for me, it's highly overrated. Um, if I want to see two bear guys wrestling, <laughs> uh, I can go on X Hamster or something. You know, it's really <laughs> a joke. But I'm just saying, you know, it just really didn't do that for me. But that scene, uh one of the first films to show male genitalia of two major actors uh, uh, was it, the... it actually um, mm-hmm. Reed's idea to do that in the buff because they were kind of wondering like should we do this and he's like I have a hell with it and he stripped down and did it I, I, I either that or Ken Russell said let's do it and then Reed took another slam of a drink and said fuck it <laughs> Uh, and you probably mean I, bear in the sense of like hairy guys that like you know gave yes. him to go after, supposed to bear as in naked. <laughs> well, both these guys are big. Alan Bates was big at the time, and they're both they're both kind of hairy guys, you know. So I, I, I'm sure when there's a bear festival, you know, they're like, hey, let's let's show this clip. Yeah, yes, B E A R. It's a thing. It's a fetish thing. And if you don't know what we're talking about, wake up. It's it's a 2000s. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure Donald Trump has been to one of these. No? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, women in love. Uh, but it, it uh, oddly enough, this is Ken Russell's only nomination for best director. Whoa, really? yes, yeah. which is uh, uh, a huge mind fuck. Um, and you mentioned these. Uh, Composer films, uh, and you know I, I've seen them. Uh, the one with Chamberlain, I really disliked. Uh, that was the Music Lovers, I believe. Yes, yeah. 1970. Uh, Richard Chamberlain, Doctor Kildare, who was gay. Everybody knew he was gay, but he was Doctor Kildare. So you know, and he was Anjinsan in Shogun. So I can forgive him for anything. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's believe we're not. We're not making any judgments. Hey, we love oh, George no. Nader. George Nader's our Please. hero. Anybody that's listening to this show knows where we stand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing was, y'all can cast him at this, y'all, leading 
you know, I don't know. It's so weird. You know, when they when they cast people like that, uh, I, I I sometimes I wonder what did they feel when they had to play this old arch romantic leading man in a straight relationship when they're gay. People know they're gay, but. But anyway, though, it's a Ken Russell film, so there are inklings of other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. He did it again later with, with the much bizarre Savage Messiah. Uh, fans of Helen Mirren naked are welcome to see that film. I highly recommend that. Uh, yes, that Helen Mirren. She's uh, always naked, though. She's like Jenny Agutter. It's like, find yes, her clothes on. <laughs> back in the day, yeah. yeah That's a Helen drinking Mirren. game. Find yeah, them with like, clothes on. <laughs> yes, yes. Um uh, the Devils, you mentioned. Uh, whew, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that movie, to be quite honest with you. It's. You know what I like about some it? Movie? Just to bring Please, everything I like Jarman's set design. Derek Jarman, before he went on to do films like Jubilee and. Uh, yeah, I mean Sebastian and all those things that he he did for the mostly for the the gay um, uh, what do you want to call that art house market? You know, same place you would see like yeah, a yeah. Milligan film, like Vapors. Yeah. Uh, he did a lot of films for that later on, uh, and of course Jubilee being his you know punk rock statement film uh, back in the seventies with people like Adam Ant in it. Um, right. Before he did that, his actually first major job, if you will, as a set designer, uh, which I think he was also involved in Solo for Pasolini, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was here, was with the Devils. And there's some really nice spare, but huge. I mean, the the scale is ridiculous, like Albert mm. Speer kind of scale, uh, where it's totally outsized and you know dramatic. Um, this is where it was. And, of course, you know, Oliver Reed, you can't fault him almost for anything because he's just amazing. You know, like him or, lo- or hate him, he's kind of like Kinski where it's like an outsized personality you know, on screen. Uh, uh, uh. But uh, the film itself, I actually preferred later ones that came after in the non-exploitation genre that were ostensibly aping it. You know, the, the model films, um, you know, oh, yeah, Franco's yeah, The yeah, Demons, yeah. you know, the, these kind of things. The Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun. I mean, the, the Devils was not the greatest. It just had with what survived some really nice um, erotic slash blasphemous moments but again a lot of versions you'll see have most of those cut out so it just tends to be long and tedious in that respect but go ahead well yeah I hear what you're saying but for me I find it hard to watch I'm not it's God knows Mark of the Devil um, what's the other one um, not Mark of the Devil 2 the other one uh, <laughs> yeah oh Flavia Flavia Superministic but probably because this is so well made, mm-hmm. and we have a cast of A-list characters. Vanessa Redgrave is in this, right? right? Yes. Um, and Oliver Reed, a stunning performance by Oliver Reed. Oh my God, guy's amazing in this. Mm-hmm. But it's just really hard to watch. Yeah. Because Ken really did a good job, uh, you know, along with the costume people, the set designer Derek Derek Jarman, who you mentioned, and everybody else. Big. Michael Cathard, uh, supporting actor, really slimy, sleazy bastard in this movie, um, as the one of the Inquisitors. Uh, it's just really hard to watch. I've seen this a lot of times. I saw this in the theater. Wow. Not in 1970, folks. But I saw it in a retrospective. Uh, I think Cinema Village back in the day when it was worth it. Uh, it was like at the time, 
It was a Warner Brothers logo, and it did say rated X, so I'm not sure how complete that was. We're talking 76, 77, one of the re-releases. It's hard to watch. It's just nasty and brutal. But it says a lot. Um, That being said, uh, The Boyfriend's a complete disaster for me uh, (laughs) with Twiggy... uh, Golden it's trying Globe. to be a comedy, too. That's part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, those are movies we both like, you and I. We like those early black-and-white things. You oh, know, yeah. uh, you know uh, we have a huge like for lots of different stuff. Um, so I, I do like the films it was aping or the musical type of thing, uh, but I didn't think it worked here. And um, just... You know, briefly, folks, we're just going to mention a couple of these things because we're really concentrating on a later period. But I didn't – because we never did a Ken Russell show before, no. but it would take hours to really dissect everything. Tommy, the Who's rock opera, uh, mm-hmm. I like it, but – and I'll leave it there because what he did was he really worked with them saying, "I work with me. I'm going to rework your famous double album. With my ideas, yeah. and and the idea of organic cinema and inorganic cinema, and or or and organic music and inorganic music clash head on in this thing, and it just it looked too plastic at times, but sometimes it worked. The addition of Oliver Reed, Oliver Reed again um, as Uncle Frank, I think it was, yeah. uh, was. A really good casting, actually. Who would have thought? Uh, yeah, but the, of, even the character itself is disturbing, even in the the double yes. album. And they made yeah. it even more so here. Maybe just yes. because it was Oliver Reed, or maybe because it was Ken Russell's doing. Right. But yeah, it really kind of goes over the top in a lot of respects. Right, right. It goes over the top. Yeah, well, it's Ken Russell. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that and Paul Nicholas, who was a darling at the time, uh, and Margaret, and Margaret. Uh, who's really in it? <laughs> and Margaret was nominated for Best Actress for this. Don't forget. Tina and, Turner. And Margaret. Uh, Brawlers in this tight-fitting thing <laughs> covered with chocolate beans. Uh, chocolate syrup and beans blasted out from a geyser, geyser, however you pronounce it. Uh, that was, yeah. But there, there's some good stuff in here. There's some extra songs. Uh, I think the only guy to survive intact from this thing was Daltrey, <laughs> who uh, did a good job first time out. Um, I think they got him at his prime. He he looked great. He sounded great re-recording all this stuff. And I think Ken Russell really tapped into that. And, um, I mean, say what you would about The Who. That's a different story altogether. But Daltrey really shines in this thing. And I think that's why... Right after they shot this thing, Ken Russell goes, I'm grabbing you for my next movie. And Tommy didn't even come out yet. And that was Litzomania. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like Klaus Kinski did with uh, Paganini, um, you know, Klaus Kinski made this this movie about Paganini. He was obsessed with it. And he finally made it, and it, and it was a mess. And it took years for his vision to come out, et cetera. Russell became uh, Ken Russell became obsessed with Franz Liszt, and so he hires Rick Wakeman from Yes. You know, at this time, Rick Wakeman not only playing with Yes, but doing lots of other stuff. 
was a really outre prog rock and experimental rock keyboard player. He was doing lots of different things, sounds, experimentation. So, you know, early Rick Wakeman stuff was really interesting to me. So he hired Rick to redo the Franz Liszt stuff. And his version of Roger Daltrey as Franz Liszt is sort of like what Kinski did with Paganini. Liszt is a rock god. So, you know, Daltrey's still in his prime, the way he looks and everything. But then the music written for this is a mess. And then we started... A lot of the cast is people from Zardas, which was probably shot in England about the same time. Everybody remembers Zardas, another fucked up movie. (laughs) And you just look, you know, sometimes you have to close your jaw (laughs) from watching it because it kind of (laughs) fell open. And you're like, eh, what? Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. (laughs) uh, I think everything hit the wall with Valentino. Mm Mm-hmm. Which which uh, stars uh, Nuria, uh, famous. I mean, Rudolf Nuria, famous, super uh, famous, ballerina. super famous. Well, what do you call him? He's not a ballerina. He's a I don't know what they call version. Ballet dancer. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Ballet dancer, but even more than that, whatever the word is, uh, whatever the term is, and and that milieu. Um, he was it, and he had a big dick, so he was screwing a lot of girls. He was famous for that, if you remember the time. Rudolph Jagger. <laughs> yeah, well, no, Jack had a small dick, but he was famous. <laughs> no, but they were uh, supposed to be together. That was one of the rumors that went around. Oh, yeah, it was a rumor, but the thing with Nureyev, Nureyev was the Mick Jagger of the ballet world. Remnants? Yeah. Um, so... I can see the connection with Valentino. Nuriev knew how to move. Valentino knew how to move. And and, but I'm not sure. Casting then, sort of maybe possibly popular, Michelle Phillips, right? Mm-hmm. From the Mamas and the Papas, right? As as the one of the female co-stars uh, was kind of odd. Um, and the whole movie's weird. I mean, this is, he's really doing a Nick Rogue thing here, spatially, because the movie begins with the ending, the middle's the beginning, and then at some point you don't give a fuck. But if people want to see Nuriev naked and see lots of <laughs> lots of Michelle Phillips naked, and actually most of the cast is naked except for Leslie Caron, because at the time, eh. But... Uh, <laughs> He, I think everybody thought this would be a huge hit um, because of the combination. But I think the, the American distributors look at this and like, what do we do with this? Uh, in Europe, it did well, but here it did not do well. And actually bombed, I think, uh, financially. And so that was 77. Uh, if you had anything you wanted to say about these movies I just briefly touched upon, let me know. I pointedly you know, did not keep my notes on those because I figured we were just going to stick to the 80s today. Right, which uh, is what I'm jumping into next, I guess. But I will say that you had mentioned that Nick Rogue is a good analog for Russell. That's true in terms of the general weirdness and playing with you know, scopes of reality, if you will. Uh, Rogue is more about time and space, whereas uh, Russell is more about hallucinatory interludes that usually right. involve some sort of you know conflation of spirituality, sexuality, blasphemy, and whatever. Uh, but 
I still don't think that Rogue, as bizarre a filmmaker as he is, was anywhere near as controversial or off-putting, if you will, to the, quote, mainstream or the powers that be as Russell was or as Wingrove was. That's why I think that's, in, in certain respects, a better parallel there. Uh, because I think Rogue always had a cachet of uh, art house level, at least, respect among everybody. Right. I, don't think, I don't think he ever was on the outs. Whereas, uh, just jumping ahead slightly, uh, Russell kicks off the 80s with Altered States. And it's... Let's go into it. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to get into my notes from this in a second, but basically this was a book from, or a screenplay from Patty Chayefsky, who was very popular at the time. I believe he did Network, things like this, mm-hmm. um, right. which was very popular, uh, indictment of how the uh, news industry was becoming more about entertainment than giving facts. And everybody was like, ah, hey, you know, it's a comedy. And you watch it now, and it's not funny. It's like... Yeah, well, so what? We've been this way for, what, 30 years, 40 years? So it was actually prophetic in a lot of ways. Um, but what happened is Russell decided to you know, be himself, like you had mentioned what he did with Tommy and some of his other films that he messes with, or even the biopics he did to some extent. Uh, he puts his own persona, his own spin on things. And by the end of it, even though they were kind of working together uh, and Chasky was involved with the production, he they had such a row. He's like, take my name off this damn thing. I'll put it like an Alan Smithy or whatever you got to do. And he was, Russell being the volatile person he is as a director, I mean, not quite Michael Reeves level, but, you know, he was explosive. He was kind of known for this and uh, somewhat erratic, almost like an Italian film director. Uh, that he basically made himself persona non grata in Hollywood, which is weird because some of the films that he does in the 80s at least have the veneer of being set in the States uh, and involving some or many stateside actors. Uh, going right up mm-hmm. to his last film before what's what happened in the 90s, he started self-financing because nobody wanted to even give him money for films. So that's how right. far out he right. went. Um, so let's just go right into Alter Stacey. Uh one I wrote is the the 80s kickoff of one of my it's actually one of my all time favorite films really Uh, it's one of the most existential mystically intellectual and philosophical films to hail from the US even though he's a British director Uh, Altered States has its origins in Carlos Castaneda and the whole Indian Native American shamanic tradition vision quests rites of passage at all with use of you know things like mushrooms and peyote mescaline you know all the things that they the herbs and mushrooms and whatever else they pick that they grind into there yeah they grind into their uh, hallucinatory <laughs> drugs. Um, so taking that stuff and combining with other post-hippie era attempts at turning on, tuning in, and dropping out like isolation tanks while tapping into evolutionary theory and a nice satanic search for communion, if not samadhi, with the atavistic lower self, rather than the higher self that would be represented by the Atma, the DHGA, so forth, uh, Ken took Panichayevsky's novel and adapted it to his own ends, resulting in, like I said, the author, who was initially involved fairly closely with production, taking his name off and falling out with Russell, as well as you know other repercussions in Hollywood. Uh, evoking Nietzsche as much as Jung, the film is essentially about man's search for God, or at least a higher self and purpose to existence beyond the meaninglessness of the workaday, but from a more modernist perspective where truth, assuming there is an absolute and not a spectrum of relative truths, is better found through alternative sources and left to the individual seeker, rather than being handed down through the faux authoritativeness of organized religion in whatever form, and on whatever side of the metaphysical divide. In other words, the same concerns that drove the Moving Towards Light podcast, those who are interested. Uh, In fact, 
William Hurt's character can be easily confused for a priest, so single-minded is he in this pursuit, to the point where he more or less ignores and even leaves behind his wife and children in favor of this quest, a point which becomes important to the Dinamont. Uh, being Russell, everything is quite in your face, uh, leaving less enlightened viewers open to mockery or even to see this as a sort of horror film when our intrepid psychoanalyst moves beyond shamanic and technological means to actually encounter a sort of divine or is that infernal uh, vision. He takes on an actual physical lycanthropic atavistic transformation. In other words, he turns Neanderthalic, running about the campus, killing people, wrecking equipment, and facing down the cops as an actual hairy ape man of sorts. Uh, later, when he reverts to normal, but continues this religious fervor, if you will, to unite with the, or at least an absolute, he finds himself reverting to something pre-human, as in protoplasmic, if not pure spirit injury, in a bravura or just plain crazy, if you don't get what the film's about, sequence in his house, bouncing against walls and freaking out through these ongoing atavistic changes. Uh, he actually just keeps, like, you know, flashing and in and out of existence, if you will, and morphing back and forth, which, for the day, this is some really heavy CG. Uh, in the end, or the equivalent thereof, uh, in the end, it's the love of his wife that saves him, their mutual love proving more important in the end than the search for the divine and absolute that drove him throughout the film. It's really... If you get it on that level, it's a very deep, existential, and in fact, moving film about, in the end, the power of love, as well as, you know, man's quest for something higher, or the divine, if you will. So, uh, as much as it's been mocked, as much as there's problems with it, as much as Chayefsky disowned it, this film is fucking amazing. There really isn't anything else out there like it. I mean, you can go to things like The Holy Mountain, or uh, Born of Fire, or things like that. And yeah, they're kind of operating on a similar wavelength, but nowhere near it. This this is a kind of a unique film in the annals of world cinema, if you will, like it or hate it. So, you're over to you. <laughs> oh man, you should you should write a thesis about this somewhere. Get it published. You did really well. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's hard to top that. Yeah, you pretty much spoke well of it. Um, yes, Patty Chayefsky. <sighs> wrote the screenplay it's based on a book by somebody I've never heard of it's a um, it was a, it was a short story actually that Polyshayevsky had read uh, I kind of lost track there sorry so Polyshayevsky had read a short story that kind of gave him the idea to write this book now Polyshayevsky uh, award-winning writer uh, he he did a lot of live TV back in the days of live TV, late 50s, early 60s. He did network, which he probably won the Oscar for, I think. Yeah. And um, so he's putting together this version of his book. He has a screenplay. And Arthur Penn, everybody remembers Arthur Penn, who at one time was like a hot Hollywood director who did good movies, grittier than Sidney Lumet, uh, Mainstream-ish, you know, some of his stuff was really good. And Arthur Penn and him fought like a fucking demon, and he got him fired. And so who did he turn to? Ken Russell, <laughs> who's already known as, like, a guy with a temper. And But they seem to get through this picture. I saw somewhere where Chayefsky hated Russell so much, he wanted to get him fired. But they're like, you know what? You already got a guy fired. We already started production of this movie. And this is back then. It's not now where somebody like the godlike uh, Lucasfilm people mm -hmm. and Kathleen, whatever her name is in company, right. where you can make an entire movie. They fired the directors, 
bring in Ron Howard because he's so good and start an entire movie from scratch. I hope these people got paid twice. Uh, that's Han Solo, the movie nobody wants to see apparently, but it's coming out. Um, I made a huge digression there, folks, but <laughs> that will happen today. But back in those days, it's not going to happen because yeah. Hollywood didn't have that kind of money. No. So uh, they dis- they disagree, but Ken Russell stayed on, and Shayevsky kind of withdrew a little bit. And uh, I think yeah, I think you're probably right. Ken Russell probably tinkered a little bit, but he didn't want to tinker too much with the screenplay because he knew how Shayevsky was. <laughs> is, who was who was that guy that was fighting with everybody? Nicole Williamson from my oh Scal- yes, yes. Nicole Williamson hated. He had a temper. He was worse than Oliver Reed. He yeah. was a big drinker too. And uh, he was he was uh, Merlin, I think, in Excalibur, yes, the John Borman film. A great actor. He was a great actor. He did a lot, a lot of stage work. That's where his name was from. And I remember one time, it's made the news world over. He had a huge fight with a Broadway uh, producer outside of a theater where he punched a guy and threw him in a garbage can. <laughs> so, you know, people have tempers. So I, I, I think at this point, you know, I think they wanted to kind of like get it in the middle there. Um, yes, there's no film like Altered States. It's it's a very cheap movie. It's 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 kind of a huge, bizarre picture. I mean, now we accept the casting because we're used to these actors, but at the time it was a lot of who are these people? It was like William Hurt in one of in his, his first, first movie, I think. In his first movie, probably. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. I don't know if he did if he did small part. I know he was a, th- a stage actor. Bob Balaban, who was great. He was. I, I don't think he did too many movies before this. Close Encounters. Mm. Drew Drew Barrymore, John Larroquette. These people become big names later. Even Blair Brown did something. I think some TV sitcoms or something later. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, she did a few movies too. But uh, yeah, it's a John Larroquette. Whatever that guy's name from Cheers was he Cheers? Night Court, that was it. Night Court, yeah, yeah, I never seen an episode, so I I never saw an episode of Cheers either. Or Friends, fuck, kill me. Uh, I'm the same, don't blame me. (laughs) Yeah, the worst thing is like we're driving around with somebody. There's a quote. What what does that mean? It's from Cheers, episode 14. I'm like, I never saw it. What? (laughs) Car stopped. Uh, so I've been there. Uh, yeah, uh, you know what I'm talking about. They look at you like so a six this movie, Yeah, it's yeah. Well, we do, but uh, <laughs> almost made me cut my nose. <laughs> yeah, we have to wear the special glasses to see us. Remember? It's, it's like, like they, all the states, man. It's no, it's like they live. You know, <laughs> obey, yes, yeah, right. There you go. You can't see us without the glasses. We look like everybody else. Anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> people, you will love the show or hate it. So I think you're, you're going to love it. Uh, so, anyway, uh, I I can't really say much different from, seriously, though, from what you said about Altered States. It's, it's, it's about all these things. And... Uh, yeah, it's a guy who's using isolation tanks, which are, by the way, coming back in vogue. I've been seeing a couple articles recently uh, about this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. I have a friend 
uh, an actual human being that I know, not just a Facebook entity. I have a friend <laughs> who actually did this in the past six months, I think it was. Um, and so this is a thing now. And I think people are using it to maybe not only to relax, but to get in touch with things. Yes. So uh, the use of the drugs. And then, you know, he – and the thing is with this character, with uh, Bill Hertz or uh, Dr. Edward Jessup character – he his use of of psychotropic drugs and uh, the midsection of the film where he he uh, gets in contact with the shamanistic Indians and he goes and visits and does peyote and huge doses of stuff comes back and uses that knowledge and those drugs to you know further his research yes. and starts shifting. I think the thing is that's really weird about the film is that after a while he does stop. Um, you know, his his uh, his coworkers, you know, his wife, you know, his family. Hey, you know, what's going on? You know, he's already changed to a Neanderthal by this point, <laughs> and back. But he stops. But the thing is, he starts turning into this amorphous mass, like a, a amoeba type, you could say. Yeah. And it's just, and he's not done it anymore. So it, it's 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 a it's a it's no longer a yeah. voluntary change. It's now become part of him, if you will. You right. know, the search becomes who you are. So Again, it's deeper than it looks. I, I actually had, believe it or not, you want to hear how screwed up I am, uh, I used to run uh, with two different people. I co-ran a film club and a book club on my prior uh, job, and I made a point of slipping out lots of interesting stuff, you know, decadence, uh, existentialism, you name it, and gothicism. Uh, and one of the things that I did was I had a season of the film club where I threw out a couple of Ken Russell films, one of which was Altered States, another one of which was gothic, and the reactions from the, quote, norms was uh, priceless, if you want to put it that way. There were people that got it. There were people that were like, wow, that was really something else. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there are people that understand this film and are like, you can love it or hate it, but like, wow, that was really screwed up, that was really deep, whatever. Uh, and then there are people that just react to it on a visceral level. They're like, I don't know what that was about, but I don't want to know what it was about. Get it away from me. That was horrible. So there is a very, very strong emotional divide among viewers. So I can understand that there were people that really hated this thing in my own circle, if you will. So. Well, yeah, it also got the best uh, critical film reviews of his career. And uh, if we have to say that we're box office, it probably got the best box office, one of the best box box office. uh, Alongside Tommy, maybe. Yeah, I think even more than Tommy, actually. Um, Because they, I think, I forgot who it was, Warner Brothers of Columbia. Warner. Warner, okay. Yeah, they marketed this thing as a sort of horror film and then pulled back after a while when they started receiving these good positive reviews. It's 1982, folks. And Warner's was coming off Blade Runner, which did not do well um, at the time. And so they're like, they're hoping for a hit. And here's this picture, I think, was a problematic movie trying to get made in production. Mm-hmm. And it starts to get some positive reviews from usually whiplash, smart, smart aleck film yep. critics. Yep. You know, what I call armchair film critics, you know, some people. Yeah. People you know, like Pauline Kale that really, like, would eviscerate films left and right, right. especially if they were Rex horror Reed, or considered. You know, yeah, Rex Reed's another one. Like that. Shallot. So, 
Yeah, right. And so when when Time Magazine Newsweek is giving it raves, and like, oh, let's maybe pull back on some of that horror film publicity we're putting out there, and let's let's put out like this drama. You know, <laughs> it, they, you know like a lot of things. They, I think they didn't know how to market this movie. Yeah. Well, it's um, kind of unclassifiable. It is. It is. But it, it's it's an excellent film. Quite good. Um, for, and and as I mentioned just now, it did very well for them, uh, Warners. Uh, it did very good for him in terms of uh, a rep. You know, he you know Ken Russell can make a movie unlike anything he's made before, and that's a point I wanted to make as yeah. well. Uh, or thereafter, actually, it stands out in his whole filmography. But something happened, and it was because of the Shayevsky background fighting in parenthesis. Um, he couldn't get a picture made for a few years. Yep. Which leads to. Which leads to four years later now. Because remember, I don't know, we haven't been going through the 70s films much, so we're just going to uh, give you a very, very quick overview because that's not our focus tonight. But basically, he made a film, not, we're not even counting the ones he did for television, not the music biographies uh, of the composers, but the films were like you know, maybe every two years, you know, kind of a, a very rapid cycle. He was a busy director. And then all of a sudden... Or every get, year. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden we get to here, and he's got a four-year gap of nothing. I mean, you guess UK, not a damn thing going down. Uh, so you get the idea of how much this blacklist, or at least temporary blacklist, uh, went against him. Um, well, I don't know whether this happened first or not, but uh, him and Tony Perkins apparently got together at some point here. Uh, whether it was through this film, or this is what led to this film, but he was actually, uh, Tony Perkins, among other things, uh, was a ordained minister in the uh, you know, the Universal Church. It's one of those kind of uh, yes. sort of culty, mm-hmm. sort of open. Uh, they were actually one of the first churches to accept gays as ministers and such. Uh, he was one of those. Hey, my, my, my first marriage was with the Universal uh, minister. There you go. Woman. They were kind of known for being open to this stuff uh, and still are. They were maybe. weird. She was weird. That's another story. <laughs> Like I said, they're a little more cult. It's not like the Methodists or people that also, you know, have gay ministers nowadays. This is back in the eighties. No, no, and 70s. they were, they were, they were, they were totally cultish. And and well, look what happened. That's why it was one of four so far. So, <laughs> so, so nonetheless, uh, Tony actually married Ken Russell to his wife, uh, basically through the rest of this period from uh, eighty four until ninety one, which is basically the period we're covering. Uh, to some woman, you know, Vivian Jolly, whoever she is. Uh, but nonetheless, um, whether this was because of the film or prior to the film, uh, four years on, Russell brings us another American film, Crimes of Passion. A still under 400-pound Kathleen Turner stars as a platinum blonde wig, filthy-talking hooker by night, fashionista by day. Her boss thinks she's selling house secrets to competition, so he sets a tail on her, only for the tail to fall in bed in some sort of relationship with her. There are a lot of screwed-up relationships in this film. The private dick's relationship with his frigid wife, uh, his one with the hooker, the hooker's dark past and obvious present causing all sorts of issues on both 
sides of that equation, and those of her various Johns, craziest of whom is the psycho himself, Tony Norman Bates Perkins. Uh, Perkins, a gay man from his earliest days in cinema, actually went bisexual for a time, even going so far as to marry and have kids with one of his partners, but eventually he wound up passing away, unfortunately, from AIDS. Uh, as such, his later films seem to show a much more degenerate-looking, obviously increasingly, slowly, but increasingly ill actor than those familiar with his earlier work would remember. Not only the Psycho sequels, but things like Edge of Sanity or this film <laughs> show a man that's clearly not well in body or mind. You know, the latter part and parcel of the roles he was playing, but the former sadly inescapable. Uh, here, he's a homeless Times Square nut job who fancies himself a priest, setting up his soapbox outside of the peep shows and whorehouses he frequents to preach hellfire and brimstone against the very degenerate souls he gets off on. Uh, he carries... That's pretty typical fundamentalist preachers, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> he carries... And uh, people in Congress right now, right-wingers. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, he carries a doctor's bag filled with tacky Doc Johnson products. My favorite was the edible licorice whip, uh, as well as a beat-up Bible. And it's really no surprise he turns out to be a de facto slasher, or at least a would-be slasher in the end, complete with a Are sister... Are you knocking edible licorice lit whips? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. The uh, blueberry <laughs> one was really good. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he turns out to be the sort of slasher in the end, complete with a Sister of Ursula-style weapon of choice, those of you who have seen that infamous yeah. movie. Uh, I actually met her, and got, when I was getting her autograph, I was like, you know, just don't use that weapon on me. She's like, oh, no, no, not for you. <laughs> so those who have seen the movie will get a good laugh out of that. Uh, even beyond the relationship thing, there's a second point to the film about one's true self having nothing to do with either surface impressions or the day job, because both Turner and this private dick have completely different, utterly banal day jobs, ill-fitting to who they really are, unlike their evening moonlighting roles, which is something that can also be said of Tony Perkins' character, whose ostensible self is preacher and true orientation as both John and killer are very much at odds. Uh, Russell is working on a much lower budget here with some really goofy, calliope-esque synthesizer music serving as score. The airing of one of those videos I'd mentioned that he'd done for some obscure UK artist during a pointless television sequence, and most of it being set on the same seedy street corner and dingy interiors. But, on the plus side, all this foul-mouthed sex talk, which admittedly Turner excels at, freak-out iconography. I mean, where else can you get Klimt and Angela Bassett being arrested, intercut with sex scenes, and Tony Person Perkins hiding in the bushes with a barbed wire crown of thorns? Once again, that religious iconography. Uh, and my Tress-style Weird Johns and Kinks, those of you who've seen that great movie, uh, played as much for laughs as any sort of turn-on, make it kind of priceless and unique for its era. Is it a comedy? Is it a sleazy softcore? Is it a slasher film? All three or none of the above. Either way, it's fun for those who enjoy their sleeves and don't take it incredibly seriously. So, how about you? Uh, <laughs> it's, it, well, a lot of these pictures, post-altered states, are so weird. Yeah. Uh, th this one, it, it's almost like... I mean, you... <sighs> Do you remember the great talk of 19, the early 1980s, when Brian De Palma had it, had it, was affixated with making a porno with major actors and yes. major distribution, and who knows? You know, you know the the story always goes with, um, with uh, adult films in the 80s is that some A-list people worked on them with pseudonyms, hidden behind pseudonyms as cameramen, as directors, whatever. But Brian De Palma was a main 
director, and he wanted to do uh, one of his De Palma pictures. Uh, Body Double was the closest I think he got, and yeah. that wasn't even – that's a different story. But this comes very close to that feeling of of a sex film with a, uh, from a major studio with at least two major actors in it. But at the same time, though, because it's Ken Russell, it's degenerate and it's yes. it's it's dirty. It's 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 a hard <laughs> picture to watch. Again, he has that word, but it is for me. Uh, like I said about the Devils, but an entirely different reason. We have we have this theme that actually, um, I think Isabel Hooper won an award for was nominated for an award for a recent picture she she had done. I believe it was her. Where she played a woman who has many different uh, guises, and she's seeking revenge. And so, is this a, a very, now? It's a very familiar theme. This, this, this Kathleen Turner. By the way, when she was smoking hot post uh, *Romancing a Stone*, she was really good in that. It's a fun movie. Not a great movie, but it's a fun movie. And um, she was still a high A-list person, so she takes this Ken Russell role. Um, as a uh, fashionista who's got hang up so she moonlights as a, as not your average prostitute not your average A-list prostitute but as a seedy you know I'll suck the cum from your balls uh, mm. prostitute you know after I, I shoved this this firestone build off your ass you know, <laughs> it, it was really a weird role for her to play and I think her career kind of like fucking suffered like everybody else <laughs> Uh, I agree with Anthony Perkins. I can't add anything to what you said earlier. Uh, yeah, he was obviously bisexual, but he was also he he contracted AIDS, and I think it, it's been reported from who, because he had a, a very steady partner, and he was not well at this point. But he was, yeah. you know, trying to be on meds, and he was trying to, you know, do what he could. He looked weird, and I think uh, shortly after this is uh, Edge of Sandy, or a year or two later. Oh, he looks so like, sick there. Wow. Yeah, that one's painful to watch for me. Just seeing him, like, oh my god. And it's a weird role. It's like you take someone's psychosis. And Anthony Perkins always seemed to me. Like, let's look at young Anthony Perkins films. As an actor, as a character actor, he always had. You could always tell there's something up with this guy. There's a psychosis that he could not hide behind a role. If you if you can understand what I'm trying to say here, yep, yep. you could always see there's something going on here, and he wasn't good at hiding. Unlike unlike Steve McQueen, who who was good at hiding. Steve McQueen, folks, yes, The Great Escape, that guy who was really good at hiding behind his characters, usually soft-spoken types. He was a raging cokehead and sex addict. Who knew? We didn't know until after his passing. Um, but Anthony Perkins was full-blown crazy. I think one of the things that hurts this film is uh, John Laughlin, uh, who at the time, I think he was in Strange Behavior, a couple of other movies that were like kind of Critiky genre faves. They were trying to make him a name, and uh, it didn't hold. And it's weak to have uh, sort of like what De Palma did. I just mentioned Body Double. He put uh, one of the 
his two main leads there are just like vapid who you forgot you don't recognize them yeah it's it's not that i'm saying you have to have a recognizable star or a recognizable character actor in the lead but one many persona. many films right many films many films numerous have worked well with you've never seen them before this guy's great you don't you know phenomenal these guys were like weak actors and he's like wallpaper in the, the male lead like, yeah, yeah, and it's a very, and it, but it's a tough part for him, you know. Also, it, the guy has problems at home, which is why he's attending these group therapy sessions, which is like an aside thing. Annie Potts, also uh, the actress who plays his wife, she was popular for a moment um, around this time period. Uh, you know, he also, by the way, is a. Uh, uh, he moonlights doing cheap surveillance work, sort of like you yeah. know what Gene Hackman did in Conversation, and you know, so he gets hired to fi- fi- follow Kathleen Turner around, who's working as a fashionista selling or designing clothes. I forgot which it was, and you know, he finds out she's a slut, and hmm. but not just your average <laughs> slut, a bizarre fetish slut, <laughs> working really sleazy areas. It's like we're not even talking Eighth Avenue. We're, we're talking like Tenth oh. Avenue. You know, yeah. yeah, it's it's like she just she just finished the cum stripping from a left. She'll do you too. <clears throat> yeah, it's that kind of yeesh. So, uh, <laughs> and now Anthony, <laughs> he's laughing, but he knows that's pretty much describing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Anthony Perkins is a complete psycho. Yep. And as you say, he's carrying around this bag with. Thank God they don't make them anymore. But yeah, these Johnson and Johnson products, you know. What, what? <laughs> Actually, Doc Johnson, Johnson Johnson, Doc Johnson, baby well, Johnson. <laughs> I think they make them now too. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> but, both Doc and the yeah, the brothers, you know. But. but uh, uh, and those of you who don't know what a Doc Johnson product is, join the 20th century. <laughs> it's called Google, folks. It's, you know, Google. For those of you who still have internet, thanks to Donald Trump and his fucking hairy bastard friends. Uh, Licorice whips. Right? <laughs> well, that's another. We should do a show on edible things. That's, that's... So, uh... And then there's the ending to this movie, and we we have since season one very rarely, and I'm not going to do it now. But we have very rarely talked about the synopsized things. You know, sometimes there's a need to, or sometimes I felt overview the need to, but I don't want to talk about this movie. It's a very strange ending, and uh, it's circular. Let's put it that way. It's circular, yeah. Uh, but the themes from this film turn up even more sordidly later on. Yes, and the last one we're going to discuss. And the last one we're going to discuss. Now we're going to go on to one of your personal favorites. Actually, it's not. Uh, I did okay. show it during the film club, I'll say that. Uh, but uh, two years later, Russell Batts... It's not one of yours. Well, you know, it's actually not bad at all, especially compared to the competition. Uh, so he gives a rather unique homage to that famed trip to Dio, Via del Diodati. Uh, excuse me, folks. <laughs> Villa Diodati, uh, I keep thinking of Diodato, the uh, cannibal film director, uh, who I met. He's a nice guy, despite all his wonderful, horrible films. Um, horrible in the sense of, oh my God, what did I just watch? Not in the sense of, wow, this is a crappy film. Uh, so, namely, it's gothic. 
as with the actual event, here both famed Lothario and decadent-leaning romantic poet George Gordon Lord Byron, and his more optimistic but maybe more fey compatriot Percy Bysshe Shelley, alongside Byron's sycophantic Dr. Pal, uh, Dr. Polidori, and Shelley's free-spirited proto-feminist young wife Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, interesting person in and of herself. I do recommend you look up the life history of her uh, and her family background, because she really was uh, a pioneer, if you will. Uh, very interesting woman. Uh, I like her a lot. And they all head off to Switzerland for a little group vacation, which is true. It's a historical fact. And as everyone knows, one stormy night, they vetted the idea of each writing a horror story. Uh, while both of the literary heavyweights, being Byron and Shelley, would produce little or nothing of value from this incident, uh, each of their companions actually did. Uh, Polidori, uh, if, if not at the time, and he had the germ for it, I believe, would later produce the short Byron pastiche, The Vampire. Uh, and Mrs. Shelley drafted the much-lauded Frankenstein. Uh, the film is as bizarre and feverish as a drug dream with one of my crushes of the time, the late Natasha Richardson, alongside perennial oddball Julian Sands of the Warlock films, among others, uh, and Gabriel Byrne acting in utterly bizarre ways that hinted all sorts of mad decadent proclivities, drug use, spiritualism, incest, and ambisexuality being the more obvious tip of the iceberg. It actually gets weirder than that. Uh, Byron's film re female guest is particularly insane, running about like an escaped lunatic from the first frames of the film. Uh, Fusely's Nightmare, uh, a Mephisto Waltz reference, uh, the mad girlfriend on all fours with a rat in her mouth comes off very much like the dog with a human face from that earlier film. Mm -hmm. uh, a morbid obsession with death and hints of Shelley's own death by drowning to come. Because uh, those who know about Shelley, that's how he passed away, not long after this. Um... It's all quite mad, and the closest Russell ever came to a horror film proper, but definitely the least enjoyable film of the ones we were discussing this evening in terms of the 80s. Uh, it's still head and shoulders, though, above The Bride or Haunted Summer, which were both basically on the same topic, though. So, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I have a lot to say about it, and I don't. Uh, <laughs> at the time... Um, Crimes of Passion did not do really well. But you know what? A year later, it turned out on VHS. This is the video boom, folks. And it sold really well. I guess people who didn't want to rent... Go to the theater, man. Didn't want to go to the theater or didn't want to rent hardcore per se or maybe got confused and said, who's Kathleen Turner? You know, and, you know. Um, it sold well. And this is, you know, this is the days when buying a VHS tape was what, what was it? Sixty to ninety dollars? Oh, yeah, it could be a hundred bucks, hundred and twenty bucks, some of them. It depends on what you were looking for. How right, right. If you bought right, if you bought one and if the rental store you would pay wex whatever the amount to lifetime or six month fee and yeah, your movies were three or four dollars a rental. Um it did well. So but he could not get major studio funding anymore. So Vestron Video, remember Vestron Video books? Vestron Video, uh, that famous lightning logo. Lots um, of stuff. A lot of good stuff. Michael Uslan, yeah, who the hell is that? He was one of the guys that for years was trying to get Batman, the Bob Kane thing, made to a major motion picture. He, As time went on, he got relegated further and further further back to the people who were involved. When the Tim Burton Batman came out, whatever the year that was, 1980, whatever it was, Michael Oslan was still associated with that. Uh, but he was a guy who was also involved with Vestron. 
So he got money off the back end of Batman because he had like a percentage or something. Mm -hmm. So he had money to burn. So besides buying the rights for all these small, low-budget action movies made in like Yoki Funoki Swamp and the Thailand and whatever, and these Godfrey Ho composite movies <laughs> from God knows where they were, he was also buying some art, arty-type movies. You know, Vestron had a lot of interesting stuff before they also burned themselves out. And I got on the invite list for Vestron for the theatrical pictures. So for a couple of years, I would go to the uh, the Magno screening room, uh, Midtown pretty much. And so there were all these fucking people like that, that bastard. Fuck, I think he's dead. He was a film critic. Uh, Jeffrey somebody. Uh, oh, TV uh, film. You're not uh, talking about the Medved guy. Um not the Medvedes, not the Michael, not the Medved brothers, Harry and Michael. No, this was a Jeffrey somebody. That was a TV guy, and he was always a prick. Going, I like this row. There's no Jeffrey scene. Lyons. Jeffrey Lyons, that fucking bastard. He got <laughs> thrown out of the Matrix when I was there once at the same screening. <laughs> this is true, folks, because he was a loudmouth bad. People applauded. <laughs> um, so he was always a pain in the ass if you saw a movie with Jeffrey Lyons. I hate him when he took over uh, sneak previews after Siskel and Ebert. Uh, he might still be alive. I don't know. But uh, he was always at these things. And he was like, huh, huh. Like, shut up. You know? <laughs> uh, Gothic is a very strange movie. Uh, yeah. Natasha Richardson, actually, folks, she was, uh, was she married to Liam Neeson? I, yes. Or they were I'm together. Sure that. She was married. And she had that terrible accident, and then she died. Uh, no, I'm being serious. Oh, I thought you said terrible accent. <laughs> but, yeah, she had that horrible skiing no, accident. I'm sorry. Was, yeah. Yes, yes, terrible accident, uh, skiing accident, where she thought she was better and then died quickly thereafter of yeah. uh, concussion, delayed concussion or something. Um, and, uh, you know, Liam Neeson, <laughs> I, th I guess we, t we stand the game from this. He decided to throw himself away from hardcore dramas and I'll become an action star. And he went right into Taken like two years after her death. So yeah. um, that was a huge digression. But Julian Sands' weird in this film, Gabriel Byrne, it, it's a bunch of weird roles, a bunch of weird casting. Uh, this is the first time I saw Gabriel Byrne that I took notice of him and it's odd that I kind of liked him in this and yeah. then off off and on disliked him in some other things mm. he, he he still stands as and probably one of the guys that killed Arnold Schwarzenegger's career for a while uh, mm. when somebody for some reason I know this is true decided to have Arnold Fight Satan. I forgot the name of this movie. Oh, yeah, um, End of Days. End of Days. And Gabriel <laughs> was, you know who. Mm. And, you know, I have to say, it's not one of Schwarzenegger's worst pictures. It's actually not a bad movie. You just come out of it with a heavy, heavy, bitter taste in your mouth because Gabriel Byrne is such a creep while he's playing Satan. So creepy. This is great. He he was having a roll with that picture. 
he was having a, a, a party with that picture because he's running around scooping women's breasts out of their blouses in, in restaurants. And he actually crucifies Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of the movie. And you're like, what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, this was like the beginning of that let's cast you as a baddie kind of cycle he did, uh, Twisted Guy. And this is like Gable Burns, uh, you know, Twisted Guy persona coming to fruition here, you know, because, you know, he did work with the Coen brothers uh, later on. It's a strange movie. I I, I agree with you. I, I feel like you do about it. You know, it's... I think we're akin on our feelings on this Yeah, one. I mean, Burns was perfect last... for Byron... Sands was ambivalent right. enough to be Shelley, who was kind of sexually ambivalent. Um, right. yes. You know, Richardson doesn't get enough to do for my taste. But, you know, it's just a weird film. And given the other films that were made around the same time, on this same event, more or less, uh, covering right. the same things, it, it stands head and shoulders above them. But is it a good film? Eh, yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, with music by yeah, with music by Thomas Dolby. Uh, Dolby. Thomas Dolby, yes, Blinding Me with Science, and I actually he was a keyboard player on the New York um, tour for Lena Lovitch. Those of you who remember your yeah, New Wave, yeah. so uh, interesting composer, uh, and he was actually I understand from a friend of mine he was actually better known as uh, some sort of electronics engineer. He was like an inventor, yes. and yes. then he just kind of moved sideline into this uh, electronic music stuff. So, you know, people have more depth than you might think, uh, believe it or not. You know, it's hard to picture nowadays, never such a dim bulb, but especially in media culture. But uh, back in the day, people would have many facets to their persona, and sometimes they would become famous. Like, we, we also mentioned uh, Herbie Hancock. Everyone remembers him for Rocket, which is so unlike anything else he'd done in his career. I mean, this guy was mm. in the best of the Miles Davis quintets. Uh, he had a long career in jazz and fusion. Uh, made things that people still remember to this day, like the Headhunter album, Watermelon Man, and yet, what does everybody remember from now? Rocket. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so there's more to people than you think, at least if you go back in time a little bit. Um, no, just like your host. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it kind of comes off that we're somewhat multifaceted, uh, or at least have, have multifaceted yeah. opinions. Uh, so <laughs> next up, uh, oh, and actually I should say also that Believe it or not, Gothic was nominated for three International Film Fantasy Awards and mm. won two. Uh, Byrne won Best Actor, uh, and the film won for Best Special Effects. Uh, also, Russell was nominated for Best Film but didn't win that. Uh, so next up is one that I'm not really going to cover, uh, but there was an anthology film called Aria at the time, which I knew because I was uh, a huge fan of Teresa Russell. I totally had the hots for her. Uh, I met her years later. She was still gorgeous. Uh, Let her know this, and she was kind of bemused because I'm there with my wife, of course. (laughs) But uh, nice girl, really nice girl. And, you know, she was very... She was known for taking very out-there roles that kind of bordered art house and erotica, uh, and was totally unashamed of this. You know, I won't say she was the greatest actress in the world, but she certainly was unashamed to throw herself into a part, no matter how outre it may have been, uh, or how much it pushed the envelope. Uh, and I always liked that about her. Uh, plus, she's gorgeous. Uh, so, anyway, she does one of the segments in this film. It's actually a multi... I mean, there's about six or seven segments in this, right. based on operas, opera arias. Uh, and among them, you have people like Nicholas Rogue, who she worked with many times. Actually, she works with him again here. She was uh, married, with, married to him. Yes. 
That's true. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard is in this. Um, who else uh, did pieces in this one? Altman, Robert Altman did one. Uh, I'm sorry, I had to look notes. Some of these are really short, too. Some of these are like oh, six, yeah. seven minutes long. Derek Jarman did one. It was like six minutes long. Right. Uh, so one of these segments, among all these other people that we're talking about, uh, was done by Ken Russell, and it stars of all people, Lindsay Drew, the porn actress, the UK porn actress, uh, who was in things like uh, Death Shock, the SOV, uh, <laughs> uh, and she actually popped up in something recently I saw, I uh, forget, it was a video, uh, somebody's music video, but anyway... Um, here he had a short segment based on uh, Nessun Dorma, which is probably one of the more famous uh, mm. ones from Puccini's Turn of the Hot. So, uh, but there's nothing much to say about this. So, unless you have anything to say I, about this film. Uh, I, I just wanted to add, though, that, that it's a com- personally, I think it's a complete mess. I remember renting, yes. this, renting this out on VHS back in the day and thinking, oh, wow, look at this cast of directors. Um, Oh yeah, John Hurtson. There's all a bunch yeah. of people, a bunch of directors. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's, it's more interesting. <laughs> it's a fucking mess. Yeah, because if anything, folks, it's more interesting for it's, the star fucker aspect of it. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, also, the the cast is really weird. If we if we threw everybody together to pierce this thing, we got like. Buck Henry, you know, Man yes. of the Earth, uh, among many other things. Beverly D'Angelo, who was so hot in National Lampoon's Vacation, I stand by that. Yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> um, uh, the aforementioned actresses you did, uh, Lindsay Curley. Tilda Swinton, who. <laughs> yes, she was in <laughs> Thor. I saw you posted that last night. But. Um, <laughs> Tilda is one of those androgynous actresses. It's sort of like, will you or won't you? But anyway, that's a different story. Uh, John John, John Hurt's in this. uh, Bridget Fonda. uh, Bridget Fonda? Like I said, Elizabeth Hurley, who was smoking hot back around Austin Powers. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people in this. It's a strange film. It's a strange film. It's sort of around the time period... Godard was back in vogue. Uh, I, I, please forgive me. I forgot for what reason around this time period. But Jean-Luc Godard was back in vogue. Uh, 91, I believe it was. Was it because of the remake and, of Breathless, and uh, which he didn't do, and also the fact that they finally released, uh, what was it, 25 by 5, the, the, the Stones documentary he had done? You might be quite correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you might be quite correct on that. Yeah. He was back on Vogue. Uh, he was making shitty movies again, and so <laughs> he always makes shitty yeah, movies. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's always making shitty movies. Uh, yeah, just like a handful, like that are okay. But yeah, okay, um, is about as far as I go with him. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we agree on that. Uh, but yeah, this is a mess. Uh, actually, this is what I would call a uh, endurance test. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I think there's a reason why some of these things are six or seven minutes long, maybe five minutes long, and so we know what that is. Um, 
Now we go on to a fun movie, which is... Yes, this is a strange one. In 1988, Russell continued with his romantic come decadent detour, this time giving us Oscar Wilde's Salome, as performed in a whorehouse with Wilde and the little bastard that ruined him, Lord Alfred Bosey Douglas, being entertained by the ladies and gentlemen of the evening. Why Salome's last dance, you ask? Well, apparently the play had just recently been banned from public performance in England, and the twist ending puts Wilde in Newgate post-performance. Uh, I believe this is the last time Russell and his favorite leading lady, Glinda Jackson, join forces in a role so blatantly drag queen it could easily have been played by one, just like Hella in Thor Ragnarok, if those of you are interested in looking at that post. Uh, you can look at the uh, Third Eye Center Facebook page, or you can look at the WordPress site where all these superhero movie reviews of late are collated. Um... Let's see, and they, the Herodian tortures of Bosey's John the Baptist are played by topless doms, but the real focus here is a saucy midget Salome by the name of Imogen Malay Scott. Mm. It's all quite stagey, the males in the cast are all quite fey, and the artificiality is played up to Oismanian standards, those of you who know your decadence. Uh, and if not, go ahead and check out the Third Eye Cinema and look under uh, Literary for the uh, Journal of Decadence. Uh, I'm a huge Oisman fan. Uh, leaving the film as an odd cross between Fellini's Satyricon and Herschel Gordon Lewis's single-camera filming of the school stage children's play, The Magic Land of Mother Goose, or, even if you prefer, the Fat Albert-esque second half of Sunrise Space of the Place, which was also filmed in a school auditorium, uh, but more to the former than either of the latter, because it's not single-camera, and there are a few scene changes, if you will, along the way that amount to filming different parts of the room, at least. I always found Salome to be one of Wilde's lesser works, I'm sorry, uh, only slightly amping up the original biblical test and, uh, text and inspiring a few interesting filmic versions like the Alan Natsumova silent version, where she insisted that the entire cast be filled with gay men, and this one. Uh, he had written it entirely in French, and the translations I'd seen transliterate into Old Testament archaisms, which was just kind of annoying. Uh, Lady Windermere's fan, or the importance of being earnest, seemed much more decadent and certainly more amusing. So I'm not really sure why it has the reputation it does. Nonetheless, uh, of the uh, adaptations of this, this is certainly up there as either the best or the second best, uh, fighting for its uh, glory, if you will, with the Natsumova version, uh, which was a silent film, by the way. We're going back to the 20s. Uh, so at least the teeny tiny Salome uh, has a Russellian femme fatale sex appeal in all her verbal filthiness and quirky physicality. Uh, the effect is quite strange, particularly in tandem with a blue frode, turquoise powdered, and overly made up Bosey the Baptist, and a cast of sloppily obese, and then peplum-muscled, and then willowy fey males uh, bounding all around and over-emoting to comic degrees. And what's with that cheesy classical music score throughout? It's just fucking bizarre in the end, which both saves it and leaves it as some sort of anomaly in his back catalog, particularly the 80s where he was less stuck in the theatricality of music theater, blatant homoeroticism like Women in Love and its naked wrestling matches, and outright blasphemously oversexed insanity like the devils. I mean, it's worth seeing once, but I'd say it's far from essential. I did enjoy it, but it's not one I would send people to go check this out. It's like, well, if you like the other stuff he's doing around this period, and you want to see you know, something that's a little bit more old-fashioned and decadent, yeah, you might want to check this one out too, but it's not essential. So, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not essential. It's far from it. Actually, I have to say it's a misfire. Uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, when you, when you have somebody you're, you're interested in, or a director you like a lot of his work, um, mm, 
Then you get to a movie like, I remember when I first rented this out on VHS back in the day, yes, uh, I couldn't finish it, and I returned it. I was like, fuck, and I stopped it after two minutes. <laughs> Years later, I did watch it entirely, and I still was like, ah, I'm not overwhelmed. Uh, one, one of the things, so uh, important to note, was because of the success of Gothic, this is yeah. still part of Ken Russell's uh, uh, deal with Vestron, who did not foil Waldis. They actually released it to art house theaters where it famously trashed, bombed. So it went pretty much what we call now, we're used to it, straight to video. Um, you know, after, after a disaster was like New York or L.A. screening, and like a release and nobody went to see it they just you know they didn't even wait I think I would write the video and it didn't do well there either um it's a movie I I beyond ambivalent about it I just didn't like it I I just I know what he was trying to achieve of course uh, but I just felt there was a huge disconnect because the Ken Russell sensibility of being weird and unusual and at this time period uh, something we shouldn't leave out Vivian his wife at the time is right he's allowing her to write things with yes. him yes. What, what's her background on this I don't really don't care at this point but it's like uh, yeah okay uh, you know it, it's sort of like that and it's like coming off of Aria and then this it's like Mm, you know, is, is the fire gone? Yeah. But but luckily there, there there's there's one or two left to go that that are pretty good, decent. Exactly, and I agree. When I first saw this, I'm like, wow, I think I got ripped off here. This is really isn't that good. And again, just like Salome itself, the wild play, it's like, well, he's just taking the play and kind of he barely did anything. Okay, he put it in the whorehouse. He had a few little visual flourishes and a little interesting touches here and there. But basically, it's the same damn thing it always was. And the play itself, even though it was written in French and transliterated, so we may not be getting the full effect. Uh, yes, I do speak some French, but I wouldn't be comfortable enough reading the entire thing in French like that. Um, well, oh, if I might, yeah, I saw I saw a long time ago uh, in the in the in Gromich Village, a a <laughs> Al Pacino director. He had done a field. Uh, apparently, it was disaster in the, in his on stage a Salome. He directed it and starred in it. And so he decided it was so bad, he's going to do a film version of it and then do a sort of cinema verite like them backstage. I thought that was better than this. <laughs> wow. Uh, with, but... with, you know, including with Al's... Hey! You know, he's, you know, I love how... Hey. I love how he, Al Pacino only, did cruising. I can always forgive him for anything after that. <laughs> he's the only man that could say a sentence and go from one to twelve. Oh yeah. In, in the Spinal Tap, well, my amp only goes to ten. Well, why does that say eleven? You know, <laughs> you know, he is like the less tacky Nicolas Cage. What do they both have in common? They're Italian. That's just something that we've got in our culture that's just like operatic, if you will. Duh. Who invented opera? Uh, <laughs> you go from zero to 12, just like that. So, but you go. know what? They haven't put these guys together yet. That would no. be something to say. That would be great. That would be great. Well, and then put them under somebody like Coppola as a director. <laughs> yeah. Go for the whole Apocalypse Now thing. Uh, but Never uh, say never, you know. 
you know, that's kind of what it was, because even Wilde's play seemed very derivative. It's like, well, okay, I can read the exact same freaking story almost line for line out of the Bible, so what's so special about this? With Wilde's, like, well, I can read the same play line for line out of Wilde. Why am I watching this? There's really not much added to it, uh, even though it is technically decadent and whatever else. So, again, not really a, it's kind of a misfire. So, in the same year, which says something there as well, uh, Russell dropped an oddly Lovecraftian take on a minor Bram Stoker novel starring future heavyweights Hugh Grant and Doctor Who himself, Peter Capaldi, alongside the notorious but sexy former Adam Ant girl Amanda Donahoe in one of his typically oversexed takes on Lair of the White Worm. Uh, Capaldi's an archaeologist digging up uh, Bodicea-era coins and relics in the form of his indescribably annoying girlfriend, Sammy Davis, who nearly ruins the film (laughs) entirely every time she opens her overly chipper yet constantly whining mouth. Uh, Grant is the local lord to the manor born, which gains him not only the comparatively hot sister, the cut-rate Amy Dolan's Catherine Oxenberg, uh, and what winds up becoming something of a de facto leading role, despite having less to do than Capaldi plot-wise, uh, but the attention is the oversexed, decadent, and kinky dom Amanda Donahoe. Apparently, she's the high priestess of this long dormant snake god, coming on to all sorts of local yokels, you know, fat old security guys, teenage boys, uh, and offering them up to the ladder before engaging in some loaded verbal fencing with Grant, whose ancestor first put the titular snake god down. Weird, cut-rate, but hallucinatorily blasphemous imagery, straight out of Nigel Wingrove, speaking of which. Uh, plenty of dirty talk and kink, both on-screen and suggested, and an obvious grounding in an appreciation of the arts in their higher forms marks this as yet another Russell film, as does the cheeky comedy that ranks through just about every line. It's much more entertaining than gothic, but objectively speaking, not really up to the same standards as some of the films that surround it, or more to the point, while it looks reasonably lavish in terms of sets and a cast jam-packed with the soon-to-be-famous, the dream sequences are absurdly cheap, as is yet another crap Casio keyboard score, paging Burzum, uh, and like gothic, it's so over-the-top at times it's downright cheesy, right down to the goofy twist ending. Donahill, though, is pure sex, definitely the slinkiest and kinkiest of all Russell femme fatales, whether she's a PVC thigh-high boot-sporting dom in furs and precious little otherwise, or blue-stocking the airline hostess or slinking about in form-fitting LeMay. Make no mistake, I enjoy this one quite a bit, and the cast, Davis aside, make this one even better than it would have been otherwise. So, your take. Wow. Uh, wasn't Sammy Davis in some of those Merchant Ivory films of this period? Yes, I think, I think she was. She's yeah, not bad looking. It's just she opens her mouth like, shut up! Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's probably why he cast her and hoping that some of the, the uh, positive critical attention would bring some, some folk into this movie. It's a weird <laughs> movie. Uh, it is. You really, no, you really touched upon all, yeah, Peter Capaldi's in this. Um, uh, Doctor Who, who I, I actually like Peter Capaldi better when he was in the, a couple of Torchwoods. He was in a Torchwood season. I, I, I didn't like him as Doctor Who, but that's another thing. Um, Amanda Donahoe, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very interesting movie. Uh, also part of this Vestron deal. Um, Tilda Swinton was originally wanted by Ken Russell. Yes. For the Amanda Donahoe part. Can you picture and, that? How bad would that have flopped? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. How old is Tilda Swinton if she's being <laughs> thought of casting for a 1991 movie and it's 
2019, whatever year this is. Uh, so it, that's... Yes, we're talking about the ancient one from Doctor Strange, people. <laughs> think about this. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, interesting. Um, so, uh, I... Oh, I got an echo there. Sorry about that. I really like this film. Um, oh, yeah. But a lot of people view it as cheesy. They really hate it. And it's obvious why. Okay, that's very flawed. Mm. But I enjoy the shit out of it. I think it's loads of fun. Yeah, and, and believe it or not, folks, it was it was cut. Uh, yes. It was released by a few minutes. I'm not quite sure why. I've actually seen that cut and uh, the the cut version. And I can't tell what the hell has been added or missing. And you, know, you get to the point where you don't care if it's not dramatically a whole subplot or like 14 minutes. Like, oh, wow, I can see why that's gone. Um, and, and I think in this case it might just been more nudity, which was weird because it's a restaurant, a company who primarily their market was home video. So uh, <laughs> regardless of, of what version they're putting out, why they didn't put it out, let's say, on rated is pretty bizarre to me. But anyway, it's a film I like a lot. It has a lot of its fans. But yeah, some people don't like it. But hey, that's the way it goes. So uh, next up was a film that I can't speak to at all because I haven't seen it, uh, which was The Rainbow. I don't know if you need to say anything about that. Uh, do you have any input on that? The other thing I'll say is that Paul again, uh, I... another Doctor Who was in this, along with the man of Donahoe. So. You stole my thunder. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Paul McGann is, is, is in this. Uh, yes, Doctor Who. Hey! Uh, I I, I kind of called about a lot of D.H. Lawrence stuff. Uh, yeah. I don't like him. This is sort of a prequel to Women in Love, but of course Ken has a lot less money to work with. And he's working with Vivian, his wife at the time, as co-writer. So, uh, you know, again, what's going on there? Amanda Donahoe was back in this. I have seen it actually more than once. I used to own the VHS of this. I don't know why, probably because it was Ken Russell. I, I, I really just thought it was very tame for him. Especially what? just... You know who else was in it? It was Sammy Davis. <laughs> yes. Not that Sammy Davis, but different... No, the same one from the, we were just talking about, the annoying one from Blair the White Worm. I know, I know. <laughs> but not Sammy Davis Jr., which would have made it a hell of a... That would have made it great. I would have loved that. Hey, baby. <laughs> yeah. Candyman, can. Um... <laughs> David, David Hemmings is in this, and it's, it's it's one of the first times I hadn't seen him in a few years. And I remember when I saw this, I was like, oh, David Hemmings is in this. And then I saw the bloated, alcoholic version of David Hemmings in this, and it was rather saddened because uh, in the years before he died, he became not the handsome, jazzy... You know, swinging 60s David Hemmings we all knew. He became, yeesh, um, didn't even look like himself. And and I was sad to see, actually. It's one of the first, after a while, he was appearing on Magnum P.I. We all remember that show. Wow, um, really? Yeah, as, as a semi-regular. And I was like, what the hell? So, uh, The Rainbow, it's a prequel to Women in Love, uh, about the younger version of Glenda Jackson's character 
And um, I thought it was a bit of a mess, but if all those Doctor Who fans, I like Paul McGann. I, I, I thought he's, he's a guy that got kind of screwed in the whole Doctor Who idiom. You know, he did mm-hmm. that one TV show, but it's brought back for a special. It was and, supposed to become a series, an American-made or american finance series, and it didn't happen. And he's a really nice guy and a decent actor. Right, and, and they, some other things. I, I was glad to see him get respect in the in the terms of when they did one of the Doctor Who specials, that they actually acknowledged him, brought him in there, and um, he's done really, really good work in uh, the Idris Elba show, Luther, mm-hmm. which I mentioned to you off air. Uh, those of you who have seen it know what I'm talking about. Uh, Really good actor. He's done other things as well, but uh, recently, of recent, he's done that. I watched Paper Tiger a lot, and I saw him in that. Actually, when I met him, I talked to him about that. He's like, oh, that was a very interesting film, based on a true story, actually. So, it's out there. He's worth checking out. He was interested in that. And that brings us to our Our final film that we're going to discuss. It's actually just at the dawn of the early 90s, and the last film that he does without having to self-finance. So, really, this is the technical end of his career, if you will. Um, just at the dawn of the new decade in 1991, Russell drops another real zinger, returned to the territory previously broached, as you had mentioned earlier, by crimes of passion earlier in the decade past, but amped up to new extremes of filthy talk, sleaze, and humor, this time removing that slasher element for a touch more street-life realism to provide some moments of tension and light suspense. Whore, sometimes marketed and sold as a rather lame and quite PC boulderization of if you can't say it, just see it, was an HBO late night or Skinamax staple back in the day, I can't remember which, and a favorite of mine is a guy who I mentioned with a huge thing at the time for the always interesting Teresa Russell, who, by the way, is no relation to Ken. Um, the film breaks the fourth wall throughout, serving as a sort of running monologue by the lead character as she goes through her work day, or work evening if you prefer, fending off weird johns with bizarre kinks, dodging, vom- dodging vomiting winos who chase away business, and running away from her abusive pimp. She runs afoul of rip-off artists, surprise gangbangers, and all sorts of unsavory types while trying to retain some degree of personal integrity and protect her since-adopted son from her bleak world, befriending no less than Huggy Bear himself, Antonio Fargus, as a street-busking bum. Uh, it's a lot more grim than it sounds at times, much akin to lesser films of the same period and subject matter like Streets, Angel, or Jailbait, but Russell's exasperatedly sarcastic snide commentary throughout and Fargus' comic mugging keep the film more on the side of dark comedy than not. Uh, Russell's at her most stunning. Ginger Lynn, uh, the porn star, drops by for a cameo. Even Danny Trejo pops up in a big part as the tattoo artist that her pimp has his stable ink by, and it's deserving of a lot more exposure and accolade than it ever got. My only gripe is the credits list of the soundtrack, which never appears to have been released. You know, I really want some of those songs, especially that Jamaican dance hall track that opens it up. We only want to do one thing. We just want to bang her. I just want to bang her. A lot 
lots of comedy and seediness here, including an old coot client who digs a bit of caning UK style, and who, by the way, she continues to visit in the nursing home that he winds up in later. Uh, a foul-mouthed argument with her pimp at a posh restaurant. The fact that he puts her through actual gym workout sessions. A goofy Indian guy in tourist clothes who keeps trying to pick her up on a motorized bicycle. A Cheech and Chong type complete with bandana and a car full of dank smoke who tries to pick her up. A guy who likes to whack off while eating her shoe heel as she sits across the room and boredly recites one of those penthouse forum style scripts he writes for her. And a Sinatra type who has a heart attack while banging her in his convertible. You get the general idea. It's semi-serious, but mostly absurdist black humor. Hey, come here. How you doing? Fine. You a cop? Why, are you? You want a day? How much? How much you gotta spend? Uh, it depends on what you do. I have sex. I give head, half and half. And I do domination. Uh, is that all? <laughs> what do you mean, is that all? I still enjoy the shit out of this one, and Russell really is quite smoking here, and gets to start her stuff in a rather a variety of rather nice outfits. So I still have much affection <laughs> for this film. <laughs> so what's your take? I, lo- I love that last one. I love that last one. Uh, well, it's funny. Uh, was was Kathleen Turner unemployable by 1991? What the hell was she doing? I think um, she was because... already 400 pounds. <laughs> well, yeah, I... I, I, I think a combination of alcoholism, rumored, and uh, thyroid problem, rumored, might, might have contributed to her being off the radar for a while. Um, they tried to market her as a male Mel Gibson with this terrible trends. They tried to market her at some point after Crimes of Passion as a female Mel Gibson, and something Warshawski, like a Polish woman. Woman, private eye or something. It was oh, a yeah, V.I. Wachowski, I remember that. That was terrible. Yeah, and she started to look really bad in that, and it was only a few short years after Crimes of Passion. And it was like, what happened? And, I, you know, maybe, she, I don't know, God knows. I didn't want to make assumptions, but we usually do it on the show, but I'll be kind. <laughs> uh, but, so, Teresa Russell, here we go. Full circle back to Nick Rogue connection, which you, you disagree with less, and Anyway, uh, Teresa Russell is working with Ken Russell, and it's different enough from Crimes of Passion, but Mm. in a way, it's in that same world of seedy sex, dirty sex. Uh, In a way, if given the two films that we'll rewatch, I would say I will watch Crimes of Passion more than I watch horror, or the many alliterations of horror, horror, you know, whatever you choose. Um, <laughs> if you can't say it, see it. it seems like... <laughs> yes, that too. Uh, because it seems to be the dirtier of the pair, and also the darker, the bleaker. Oh, the yeah. bleaker one. It's almost like, who would sign on to this picture? And um, interestingly, interestingly enough, Antonio Fargus, who <laughs> has Huggy Bear from Starskin Hutch, he's, he's actually really good in this. As a, a, you know, Jamaican, I guess we call him a Rasta character. Oh, actually, he plays a character named Rasta, who befriends her and actually saves her life. Uh, He's in this uh, featured role. Jack Nance, who people may recall working with David Lynch back in the day, uh, Lynch's earlier films, is in this. Danny Trejo, you mentioned, uh, actually has a interesting part it's one of Danny's earlier films mm-hmm. but uh, 
is this a weird movie? You know, it's almost like she's addicted to sex, but she's addicted to her character. Sleazy sex, slimy, street sex. Like, we're not quite sure. I think the problem with this movie is we, we, and Ken Russell doesn't, it depends on what he intended, doesn't get into or beneath the skin of this character. Not not trying to be funny at all. And so we don't know why she's doing this, really. And it's just a series of incidences, each one darker and darker and more darker and more bleaker. And it gets to the point where it's like, okay. And then we have the ending, which, again, like another Ken Russell film we discussed I, that I had said I didn't want to spoil – um, it's not fatalistic, but at the same time, it's like, hmm, okay, why did I watch this again? Besides, if you got a thing for Teresa Ars, which you do. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, no, what's interesting is that you're saying about that you don't really get inside the head of the character, which is really strange, yeah. given that the entire film is basically her breaking the fourth wall, talking to you, and relating all these incidents, and then while she is in the film acting it, and you're seeing this ostensible flashback, I agree. She's with still you. giving you her opinions on like what's going on. So I, there's a lot of. I, I know. I agree with you, but, but it doesn't I, get deeper I, than it that. It didn't work for me. Yeah. No, no, it's not so much that it didn't get deeper than that. She could be lying to us. So this yes, is the exactly. thing I think you feel that this this character is breaking the fourth wall totally. This is what happens in the film, folks. Often, too. She's she's explaining things, talking to you, telling you what's going on. No. It's like if you if you went to a prostitute and hi you ask her where you're from you know what's going on you went back a few times and I again I have absolutely no experience with this but I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> would that person tell you the truth and I think that's what Ken Russell was getting at with this yes. kind of film the it's unreliable narrator. It's the yes. same thing as uh, China Blue was doing in Crimes of Passion. They're like, oh, what's your name? China Blue. <laughs> what, what's your real China name? China Blue. And, you know, China but, Blue. You know, or she named whatever the, that she was right, playing. Exactly. Yeah. This is the thing I'm saying, that it's related in a way to, to Crimes of Passion, but not quite. I thought it was even darker. This person can't tell a simple narrative, can't tell a simple truth, and mm-hmm. by the end of the film, walks off to continue her life. Yes. Whereas in Crimes of Passion, there's a little bit more positiveness. I hate to use the word redemption there, but possibly. Possibly, because of the relationship with the uh, the moonlighting security uh, guy that was chasing her around. It goes a little bit more positive. Right. I mean, they do try to give somewhat of a positive ending here, the the visuals, you know, that little smile at the end or whatever. But, you know, again, it's circular. You don't, you don't really know that anything's going to change whatsoever. You no, know, she no, has the possibility of going to a new city and moving on. I, I, I didn't get that feeling at all, but yeah. it's a bleak... I, you ask me, I say it's a bleak film. And unfortunately, it didn't do well. And a few years later, Ken is, yes, self-financing, as you mentioned earlier. Yep. Writing, uh, I believe, movies with his then-wife, not Vivian. He married someone else. Right. And at some point in time, because uh, I believe we're not covering this, correct? At, at some point in time, Ken was doing stuff like Revenge in the House of Usher, not the Franco movie, yep. filmed in his garage. Yes. Um, and what was the one about the mouse and Hitler? 
Yes, yes, yes. Very deliberately controversial, very strange. I mean, you know, these are really like SOV level kind of productions at this point that he knows yes, will never totally. get shown anywhere, more or less. Well, some of them did surface. I mean, unlike Franco, Jess Franco, who was director, cameraman, actor, whatever, um, provider of cigarettes, um, and yet he had a crew, you know, spare as it was. I, I, I get the feeling from some of these uh, Ken Russell things that it was like he was the, he was a, a featured actor in many of these things, a featured actor, director, cameraman, co-writer, costume designer, editor. You know, I, at some point in time, you're like, oh, Ken. Um, toward the mm. end of his life, he uh, was receiving accolades here in the U.S. primarily, primarily in retrospect, where he was. Uh, uh, New York Film Festival and a few other places and they were showing a few of his films he actually showed up and uh, he actually, yes he appeared and he spoke and I missed it uh, it was a show I could not go to he was actually his one and only convention appearance was at Chilla Theater a few years ago and I missed it I couldn't go and I I'm sorry I missed that because uh, it would have been a great opportunity to meet that guy because he didn't really do these kind of things and I think this was at the period where he was doing these uh, appearances at these uh, film festivals etc so he's these are the later Ken Russell films we discussed and um, hope you enjoyed listening about them so uh, next time we will be discussing Barbara Steele How does a nice British girl out of Liverpool wind up as the figurehead of Italian horror cinema? One of thousands of feckless art school attendees during the beatnik era that both preceded and prefigured the sweeping cultural change of the British invasion and the subsequent hippie movement, Barbara Steele's striking yet severe looks lended her roles in several classic Italian films, even catching the eye of Federico Fellini himself, while creating all too brief series of gothic horror efforts that all but define the genre. Working alongside the now much-faded likes of Mario Bava, Riccardo Freda, Antonio Margheriti, and Sergio Car- Bucci still all but personified the Italian mala femminina, the most deadly of femme fatales, because in the right hands, the steel anti-heroine embodied the inescapable allure of the Thanateros, the morbid obsession, even passion, and longing for the dissolution into the other, most pointedly in the finality of death. Parlaying her Italian fame into roles for Roger Corman, Michael Reeves, Vernon Sewell, Joel Dante, and David Cronenberg, not to mention an abortive starring role against none other than Elvis Presley, Steele would find work in horror and cult cinema throughout the 60s and 70s, eventually settling into a role as co-producer and occasional on-screen presence for the inimitable Dan Curtis, even landing a production gig on, of all things, Queer Eye. So join us as we wend our way through the funereal gothicism and necrophilic lore of Barbara Steele, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, as we tackle the Icy Eyes of Death, the films of Barbara Steele. The Icy Eyes well, we're, of we're, Death, the films of Barbara Steele. Yeah, the, uh, yes. We'll be discussing some of Barbara's uh, more well-known titles. She, she's done a lot. Not, not extremely prolific, as anybody familiar with her is aware of, but... Um, She's a, a good subject for our third show, and uh, since we haven't covered a specific female presence in the genre at all, I believe, so far, uh, though we did speak of Angela Mao during one of our shows uh, quite a bit. Um, we did a Bardot show. But... We didn't do an all-Bardot show. Oh, yeah, we did. We actually did an all-Bardot show, believe it or not. Bardot and nothing else? Nothing else. 
Where See, was it's I? been a while. <laughs> okay, I stand corrected. We did a Bardot show, so now we have a Barbasale show. Oh, two Bs. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I was. I don't remember this. Look, people, see. this has been a while. We've been off air for a year plus, and yeah. the Bardot show was probably a good two years ago now. So. <laughs> That's why I don't remember. Was the episodes good? in the archives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it was pretty good. Uh, another. Okay, okay. Uh, I have to listen to it again. Go <laughs> <laughs> refresh our memories on the old stuff. Uh, so anyway, uh, next time around, we will be doing the ICIs of Death, the horror yes. films, at least, of Barbara Steele. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy our little drawing room chat on uh, Ken Russell in the 80s. And if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician and would like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or you can drop by our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at weirdscenes1, and weirdscenes inside the goldmine, brought to you by, I guess sort of non-existent at this point, Big Papa Online Network, currently airing on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, so we will see you next time around. I just want to reiterate, as my co-host just said, though, anyone that's you know interested in uh, getting in on this discussion, artist, entertainer, filmmaker, actor, actress, or musician, uh, yeah, just contact us, and you know we'll see about putting something together because we're always interested in getting the other perspective, trying new things, if you will. <laughs> yes. All right, join us next time. Yes.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards light. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, a 
Thomas Paul, and myself, discuss the beloved, the Canadian, the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, and television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Calling all podcasters, musicians, vloggers, and reporters, and everyone else who wants crystal clear recording that's super portable. The Sure Motive family of microphones makes studio quality audio that's as simple as plug and play. Many of the world's top podcasters rely on Sure, and with a Motive line of iOS and USB microphones, portability is now your friend. Imagine being able to get great audio quickly and easily from your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply visit Sure.com/Motive to start getting great audio for your content now. That's S-H-U-R-E.com/Motive. 